Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Jim Williams, the Vice President, Chief Investment Officer, and Treasurer of the Getty Trust, where he oversees a $7 billion portfolio for the Getty Museum. Before joining the Getty in 2002, Jim spent three years as the president of Harbor Capital Advisors, and prior to that, was manager of the Ford Motor Company Pension Department. Our rich conversation covers all aspects of managing a significant pool of nonprofit assets, including modeling liquidity, creating a specialist team structure, sourcing managers, discerning between talented managers, co-investing, 
sizing manager positions, investing in venture capital, viewing hedge funds like a basketball point guard, working with a constructive board, and finding opportunities in the current, quote, least dirty shirt market. This conversation ranks way up there in breadth, depth, and quality of discussion. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed speaking to Jim. Please enjoy my conversation with Jim Williams. Jim, it is so great to be here with you. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. We are here in the beautiful confines of the Getty Museum, and you've been here for a long time. Is it 16 been years? 15 going on 16 years, and I still pinch myself driving up the hill that I get to call this my office. My goodness. So Fantastic. Why don't we just start with your background and how you got here you know, to back in 2002? Well, I'll go back to the beginning. I'm a small town kid, a town that had two traffic lights, Flat Rock, Michigan, about 20 miles south of Detroit, blue collar, and just great people. I loved it. It's a place that you didn't lock your car, didn't lock your door of the house. People helped each other. It was just a great place. Went to University of Michigan, majored in engineering. I had I kind of just fell into that. I had no idea. We had no guidance counselor at my high school. So it was something I just stumbled into. Paid my way through school by working on the assembly lines of the auto cars in uh, Detroit. So I would start work the day after school ended and then quit the day before school started. And the good news of that is I graduated debt-free. I paid all of the school myself, and there was just a good feeling about paying for your education and getting through that system. Then when I graduated with an engineering degree, I went back to the assembly lines, but this time as an engineer, I moved to Chicago, and in fact, the only job I could get, it was a downturn, was working as an engineer in the Chicago assembly plant. So now I'm around the same hourly guys I used to work with and developed a real respect for those hourly workers. But it also gave me an opportunity to go to the University of Chicago. And what an incredible time. This was the 70s. So Myron Scholes, Fisher Black, Gene Fama. I even sat on some classes that Milton Friedman taught so it was an amazing time to be around the university and great experience. What did you come away with other than perhaps a healthy respect that for That I didn't want markets? to be an engineer. <laughs> that I did not want to be an engineer. I was done with the assembly plants. So I transferred to headquarters in Detroit and I worked a series of finance jobs now. And But it was controller's office, treasury, doing budgets and financial analysis type of work, which was good but not exciting. And then I was thinking, what, what really excited me? You know, the advice we give kids, do what you really love, follow your passion. So I went and talked to HR and said my passion was investing. So I want to transfer to the pension fund. And they said, no, no, you, you really don't want to do that, Jim. That's a black hole. You'll never get out. That's the end of your career. 
But I persisted and went there and just loved it. Spent a little over a decade. And sorry, that's a little run-on story, but it's an important part. A very creative guy about 30 miles south in Toledo, Ohio, named Ron Bowler, had created the Harbor Mutual Funds out of the pension fund at Owens, Illinois. And Ron was stepping down. Friend told me about this opportunity. I went down and interviewed, and I took the job. And I was now doing the pension fund at Owens, Illinois. But more importantly, I was president of a mutual fund company. It was all sub-advised. What type of mutual funds were they? All just public equity, fixed income, high yield. I actually created five or six mutual funds that are still out there. So that's That's kind of exciting. Yeah. And they were all sub-advised, so doing the same thing as running a pension fund. No money was managed in-house. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do now. I'm really enjoying this. And I got a call from a friend who was a money manager I had interviewed for being a sub-advisor in the mutual fund. And he said, Jim, I've got some news for you. There's some good news and some bad news. Here's the bad news. You're going to fly out to Los Angeles You're going to meet one of my longtime best friends. You're going to have a behind-the-scenes tour of the Getty. You're going to meet some great people and see this fabulous institution. That's the downside. The upside is you're going to become their first chief investment officer. And that's what happened. That's how (sighs) it played out. And I came here just to carry it one step further. When I got here, they were largely invested in public market stocks and bonds. They had three to 4% of the portfolio in a couple of hedge funds and a handful of private equity funds. The rest was all public markets. They had some new trustees who came in who were also trustees at Harvard and Princeton and Stanford and Ford Foundation. And they were saying, why don't we look like that? So that was my charge is to make us look like that. And take a quick step back before we dive into the investment side and talk a little bit about the pool of capital and how it marries with the purpose of the trust. That's good. So the pool of capital, when I arrived, it was a little over $4 billion. And today it's? Today it's a little over $7 billion. Of course, there was a big move in the middle of this with the financial crisis. We were up into around 6 and then back down to 4 and now back up to 7 But the capital really supports the entire operations of the Getty. So a lot of foundations and endowments, the endowments who support universities, they may support 20 to 40% of a university's budget. But here, we fully support 95% of what the Getty does. It's, It's free admission. We do conservation projects all around the world. We have one of the top libraries in the world. We have visiting scholars come in from around the world to spend time here. We house them in an apartment building. They spend uh, time here working on their sabbatical and publishing works. All of this is paid for. So it's a great sense of accomplishment for the staff and for the trustees to know they're supporting this incredible institution and what they do for the arts. So with such a high preponderance of the support of the budget coming from the trust pool, how, how does that impact your asset allocation structure? So it's one thing if 
you have a bunch of trustees who say, boy, the endowments are performing really well. Shouldn't we do that? But is there a different level of risk tolerance? Is there a different structure that makes sense? Our number one risk is liquidity. So when we are looking at risks, generally I've characterized it to the trustees as three big risks. The first is always permanent impairment of capital. You want to protect capital. But the real driver is liquidity. I'll come back to that in a second. And the third one is maintaining purchasing power. And I characterize that as a risk intentionally because trustees tend to focus on risk. And the first two, just not losing money and being liquid, you could satisfy that by just being in T-bills. So you got to characterize as a risk that you have to maintain purchasing power over time. So with that in there, the real driver of our asset allocation is liquidity. Liquidity drives everything. So we create these series of stress tests because the whole place runs on what we have. So we spend 5% of the trailing three-year average assets. I think that's a reasonably common spending rate. But with that, we have to make sure we have the money there. So it's fairly predictable what we need to have. So we're looking at making sure that we always have adequate liquidity. And we define here a liquid asset as the ability to convert it to cash within a year with no loss in value. And the year is important because we know our monthly spending. I don't need next day, next month liquidity. I just need to know we can keep the lights on for the next year so we can ladder things out or we can be in a fund that you can call your capital in 90 days or 180 days or even a longer period as long as we ladder it out that we always have things available that we could redeem. So that's the liquidity process. If you fine-tune that liquidity preference into a function, there are a lot of subtle flows that you have to consider, right? So one is, say, private equity or or real asset, any lockup structure commitment. Mm -hmm. How do you factor in the monies that you might have to contribute to a fund that you committed to in, in that liquidity profile? And we probably are more liquid than we need to be. And that's a project that we're working on now is to try to more be more optimal in how much liquidity we have. From studies we've done, we've known that our private equity returns are the highest asset class return that we have. We know that over full market cycles, it's a good full six percentage points above public equity or above the total fund return. So we want to put as much into those spaces as we can. And to do that, we, we just need to keep liquidity at enough that keeps everybody comfortable, able to sleep at night. But at the same time, we don't want to be losing return opportunities too. As you distill that liquidity into a metric, Mm -hmm. what's that number for you? It will vary. It'll be between 40 to 50% illiquid is, is pretty comfortable. And then you have that area in the middle that is hedge funds. So there's about 40 to 45% that are really public market. And then you have that hedge fund, semi-liquid stuff in the middle. And then you have 40 45% that are really quite private. And it's, 
addressing that part in the middle and laddering out when you have lockups that will mature and you can get capital out. And it's a, a pretty extensive, massive spreadsheet that takes every investment we have and maps it to liquidity as to when it will be liquid. And uh, we want to push that a little further to see can we can we be any more aggressive without losing or taking on an unreasonable amount of risk. So you know we were talking earlier as a fun aside about liquidity needs and bringing them into the, the practical nature of what you do. You have your operating budget; it supports conservation and the library and the, the exhibits, and then every now and then. There's a beautiful piece of art <laughs> that the museum has the opportunity to purchase, and mm-hmm. these things don't come cheap. Mm-hmm. They, they come with big price tags. So uh, we work with the trustees, and, and they want to know how comfortable are we in making that kind of an acquisition. So we have a long-term expected return through market cycles of something 8% plus and the plus is the part that's a little hard to define. We have a spending, the 5% of the three-year average, so the actual comes out in the 4.6 to 4.8 range. Recently, we've had a couple of percentage points of inflation. That may go up some. So ideally, we'd like to have some real number that is – in excess of that. So it, it has been around a percentage point plus that we think is incremental real return above our spending needs. And the trustees can make the decision. What do you want to do with that? They can let it grow in the budget. So they have discretion to allocate it to different projects like the conservation programs you were describing or uh, just any special purchase, if we have a big acquisition that the curators, museum director, CEO thinks really this is going to move the deal. This is an impact acquisition. It is important and significant. We have a conversation, and that's one of the few times that they ask me to weigh in at the board meeting. Is this something that we're comfortable doing? So we'll talk about the long term, and they have to make the decision on the acquisition. Is this a priority for them? But it's an exciting contribution for us to feel. And in this particular case, we made a really major acquisition, and we and the investment office felt a great deal of pride that the excess returns that we've had above benchmarks over long periods of time are what really funded that. In fact, to take it a little bit further, if we looked at our returns versus benchmark going back over the 15 years that we're here, it's between 1% and 2%, call it a percent and a half, do a percent and a half on the assets that we have compounded over 15 years, we've had over $7 billion worth of investment gain or investment profits over the 15 years. I'd say about $6 billion of that is from the markets, but a full billion of it is from our abilities to outperform the markets. And that's a source of enormous pride that that money shows up in wonderful ways that we can feel good about. So let's dive into that from, from, from the beginning. You show up. It's not a blank sheet of paper, but it's a very <laughs> simple approach to investing. 
What beliefs did you bring to the table and uh, your trustees bring to the table that drove how you decided to allocate this pool of capital? Well, it's not going to be that different from the standard endowment model that many of our colleagues all know and use. It has a strong equity bias and it has a strong private market bias. We think those are areas that earn excess returns. It was building that network over time, building relationships over time, trying to find who are the the top-tier managers. I visited with many peers around the country who were very helpful and willing to uh, share their thoughts and ideas. And the key to everything is people. So it was bringing in staff. And our great recruiting advantage is the experience you had today showing up here at the Getty and walking around this campus. It's our best recruiting tool and people like to be here. So we are able to bring in a really high quality group. If I could pull the organizational piece a little bit further, we're organized along asset class categories. So we have four managing directors. Each of them has an analyst and then an assistant and myself. So the whole department is 10. We have no responsibilities for back office work. And we're along the lines of that silo or specialist, I hate that term silo, but it's used, of asset class structure. And I know many lean toward more of a generalist structure. There are pros and cons of each. I think the pros of the asset class are that people really become deep experts in their space. They get to know the managers. They get to know their peers in the group. They really become deeply knowledgeable. They get to know industry experts. And from that expertise, I think you can do a superior job in manager selection under an asset class structure. But it has shortcomings. You can become too narrow and too insulated or isolated within your asset class. And the generalists do a better job on asset allocation because they're looking across a broader opportunity set than people who are in a silo asset class structure. So you try to overcome whatever shortcoming you may have, depending on what you choose. Either structure works, can work well, but with our asset class structure, we have to be mindful of that. So we try to organize ourselves in a way that people work together on different projects. If we have a really top manager coming in, we'll have everybody in the office sit in on the meeting. Meeting will be run by the specialists in that area, but everybody gets to hear it. Everybody gets to understand what's going on in that space. And then we'll have the team meetings that everybody has where we'll push back and forth across the different asset classes and bull and bear thoughts on all the different asset classes and get everyone involved in the generalist type conversation about asset allocation. And I make a speech to all the young people when they join us that at the end of the day, there are really only two asset classes. You're either an owner or you're a lender, and everything else is a permutation. 
in equity, it can be big cap or small cap, it can be value or growth, it can be public or private, it can be in any geography, but they're all permutations. If you're in public equity, they call it a PE ratio. If you're in private equity, they call it a purchase price multiple. If you're in real estate, they call it a cap rate. But it's all looking at a stream of cash flows, discounting it back to a present value, doing some analytical work with that, coming up with valuations and where is the market price and determining if there's a value there. They're very similar, but there are nuances around all of these. So our goal is to build that framework for everybody in every asset class so you can look across asset classes and see opportunities and see where we should be overweighted and underweighted. What do you think about the drivers of return being asset allocation versus manager selection? I used to think that asset allocation was a bigger driver. We can all remember the studies back in the the 90s that said that 91% of the return can be explained with asset allocation. And now we read that the study wasn't what yeah, we thought it, it was. Yeah, Brinson yeah. B. Bauer did that great study. And it, it just isn't really that way, particularly when you bring in all of the multiple asset classes. And our internal analysis and look across this is that it's really more manager driven. And we're really looking for the great people and trying to find the best managers. It's nice if there's a tailwind and it's in a sector and it's in a geography, and if you have a manager in that space, I mean, everything's working in the right direction. Boy, that's where you're, you're going to take a really big bite of that apple. You're going to have a massive overweight when you've got everything going in the right direction. But the most important one of all is the manager. And right now we have a really big overweight on China, but I think it has more to do that we have high conviction in several Chinese managers than it is about a view on China. We like China. We think there's a tailwind story there. But the real reason we have such a big overweight is we have managers that are a thousand basis points over benchmark. And and have you approached China across the kind of asset class categories, public, private, real estate, whatever? How have you played that opportunity set? We are across all the asset classes. The bigger weightings are more in public market Real estate, I think, is a challenge, but the public markets are our biggest allocation, but we're across as many as we can, and the fallout is more from finding the manager. If we really believe in the manager, we're going to be there and be there in size, and the asset class and the geographies are kind of a fallout from the manager selection. So how do you go about finding managers in China? (laughs) I'm trying to not name specific names, and they come from a variety of angles. Uh, Some of them we met ourselves directly. Others came from network, where a lot of us are in the same investments with the same managers, but we came about it in different ways. It is just working as many different ways of finding the opportunities as possible and asking as many different of your peers as you can. And we try to build those bridges to other institutions and ask the staff, be willing to give up your best idea to another institution. Give them your best idea and see if they give one back. 
if they don't give one back, you may not want to give them another one. <laughs> but if they do, uh, you've got a great relationship going and you can share in these things. So we're not part of the Ivy League, so we are not competing with them. We try to be more like Switzerland than a competitor in the Ivy League schools rankings. So they can uh, come to us and maybe fill up a really top tier fund with a, a nice, wonderful group of people from Los Angeles. So we'll look for any place we can find them. We're very comfortable doing new funds, first-time funds, if they're there. The ideal, I think, is when you have the experienced managers who spin out of a fund that maybe got a little too big. And they talk to each other and say, God, remember how much fun this was back a decade ago when we were a third this size and we we're playing in a different pool and God, that was great. Let's go do it again. Wow, those are those are people you want to follow. It's it's people who make money. And there is some legacy to a firm. Uh, particularly in venture capital. There is some statistical persistence in venture capital. It's one of the few that has statistical persistence. But a lot of them, it, it is really the people. And you try to find those folks who know how to make money and follow them and get in. And if you get in early, you can get that sizable allocation that really matters. So in all of these asset class areas, particularly the alternatives, whether it's hedge funds or venture capital, private equity, to some extent, you know, real assets. When you've had this massive proliferation and in investing in these vehicles over the last 10 years, you have many more organizations that are large and therefore spin off many more potential of these newer opportunities. So if you have two or three groups who you know all of them because of some past relationship and they all have made money and they're all telling you that same story. What are the two or three things underneath that really drive you towards one and, and not the other? If you were in the private markets, uh, then it's kind of the deal flow and it's understanding their specific deals. And one of the few areas where I think a reference call is really, really good is in the private markets where you can talk to the operating guy who was maybe part of a, a venture fund, part of a buyout fund, and a PE fund bought them, and talk to that operating guy and say, how helpful were they? Did these guys really move the needle or were they just providing capital? And how helpful were they through every step of your growth? And people are really pretty candid in those conversations. And you're looking for that kind of a reference call of talking to the operating guys. The days of financial engineering, I think, are kind of gone, of just buying something, throwing a bunch of leverage on it, hope the price goes way up and sell it out. Yeah, that's not going to make it today. So you really need great operating people. And if you can find a reference check that says this is a great operating institution, yeah. How do you, and how do you approach it in the, with public market managers then? Public is a lot tougher. It is a far more efficient market. And there it's probably more process driven. So again, we have in public equity, a core manager who is kind of a 130-30 or long short style that probably has 500 positions, very sector neutral, very 
market neutral, balanced value growth. And they are just making long, short bets on what are the best companies in every sector, making literally many hundreds of small bets. And the law of large numbers, if they're right 50, 60% of the time, they're going to do great. And this particular manager has been like 300 over in their life. And that's a 5% core position for us. And then around that, we will have more niche players and some activist players who are looking for something a little different, a little more opportunistic to try to capture some inefficiencies in what is a largely efficient market. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,025 and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. So if you take that example of that very successful 130-30 fund and a subset team that maybe covers two of the sectors spins out, Mm -hmm. off the top of your head, what are the key questions you would want to ask that team to see if they have the stuff to kind of replicate or maybe even do a little better because they'll be managing a smart pool of capital? Wow. Well, I worked in the auto industry for a long time. And we had this feeling for a long time that the auto, the U.S. auto industry is going to come back. And year after year, it just kept shrinking. So the the lesson I took from that is you don't want to be in that kind of an industry. If you can find the sectors, and there are there are the ones out there. We see it in technology, we see it in biotech, we see spaces that have a tailwind. Something that is supported by demographics, by technology. You want the tailwind. And then if you have smart people operating in a tailwind. You have the the makings of some real success and trying to find out what is their competitive advantage. Size and speed normally play into that some way. Overall, we have a bias towards smaller. What I like about the Getty's size, I mean, all of us look for a competitive advantage, right? Whether we're an investment manager or we're an institutional capital allocator, what is your competitive advantage? So as a $7 billion foundation, we have our size and our speed. Our size advantage is that we can do smaller funds and get a big enough allocation that it moves the needle. The much bigger funds can't do that. Yet we're still large enough to matter 
to a manager that we're not making tiny allocations. We still have a good enough name and a good enough size that they want us around. So I think our size is rather ideal. And the speed advantage is just that the trustees have delegated broad authority to us in the investment office that we have final authority on manager decisions. We don't have to go back to the committee. So we can move quickly. We can provide certainty of close. And the ability to talk directly to a manager and move quick really does matter. I'll pull it one one further direction. One of the asset class, it's not really an asset class, but spaces that we really like is co-investing. If we put all of our co-investments together from all the different asset classes and put all the co-investments into one pool, it would be our best performing asset class. There's a big but to this. I got to get my caveat in. The big but is that it has to be with an existing high conviction manager only. We never do a co-investment that comes in over the transom. We don't do a cold call co-investment. We only do it with our highest conviction managers. We know the asset. We know the equity that's behind it. We know the support that's going to be behind this particular investment and we can move quickly and they need capital in a short period of time. We've done both debt and equity and our ability to move fast is a real advantage in doing co-investments that have provided us some really good returns. So let's dive in a little bit more to the co-investment program. Mm -hmm. How do you start with what you're looking for. So you've already said you only want to do it with your existing relationships who have co-invests. Are you separately underwriting deals or are you just saying, well, these are going to be lower cost ways of getting more exposure to the, and we're just going to do all of the ones that fit that criteria? Haven't done all, but we do a pretty high percentage. When we are doing our due diligence, we bring up co-investing and it can be a tiebreaker among managers that we really like If you're doing a fund, you are sitting on capital that is tied up to support an unfunded commitment. We have to sit on that liquidity that we talked about earlier. But a co-investment, the money goes out quick, it gets invested, and frequently comes back to you within a few years, as opposed to a seven to 10 year fund life. So we like the return profile, the timing, and the experience we've had is they've been higher return opportunities as well. So we search for it during the due diligence process, let people know our appetite, let the GPs know our size appetite and our speed. And a lot of times they need to move quickly to get a deal done. And if you've impressed upon them that you can make decisions in a a week or two, that's a big wow because a key driver on many of the co-investments is certainty of close. So how do you underwrite these investments in a week or two? Generally, because we have already got some decent information about it. We knew about it before the co-investment came up. We know something about the manager. We will never 
know as much as a GP does. You just have to accept that about anything you underwrite. You do not know as much as a GP. So there needs to be a pretty strong alignment of interest, a knowledge that the GP is putting some of their own money in this, not just the fund money. And when we see that level of conviction with the GP, we will talk to some industry expert in that particular area. Away from that away GP. Away from that GP. And that's the probably the, the toughest due diligence level we go to is understanding that opportunity set and having some conviction from industry experts that, yeah, this this is a solid place. We know it's going to happen now quickly, not something three years from now. So we can gain some conviction that this is a good time to do it. And will someone on your team try to do a 48, 72-hour deep dive due diligence on the underlying company as well? Yes. Yes, very much so. We we will travel to it if we can. We have frequently made the, the due diligence trip out to meet the management team, see it on site, see the facility, the service, what it is, so that we have some firsthand knowledge, as well as the diligence that the GP has provided, as well as some industry expert, and try to build our conviction as quickly as we can. And we normally can come to some conclusion in a quick period of time. Yeah. So the the process of underwriting a, a company investment is quite different from underwriting a manager. And your experience and your teams is primarily focused on the manager side. How do you put into context what you find, particularly as you start this program and you're starting to build it up, and you, ha- you don't have a lot of data points. So yes, you've got a few positive screening criteria of how this found you. Mm-hmm. But how do you, you know, so maybe a, a good way to ask it is, what'd you find in the ones you didn't do? Less conviction in the general partner in some way. Something just didn't feel as positive, whether it was body language, tone of voice, I'm not putting personal money into this, some level of conviction that comes back to us. I want to know that the general partner has real skin in the game in this one, and he's just not doing this with other people's money. And that's probably the biggest driver of all. Are you putting some of your own money into this co-invest? Have you had examples where the the GP is all in, you did your work, and something about the company or the industry or what your industry expert told you said, eh, we're not going to do that one. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. have those examples too? Yes. And it, it generally is just someone in that group, their conviction wasn't high. It could be the industry expert that, geez, I don't know. There is some competition from this other provider, from this other technology, from something that particularly if the GP didn't point that out and we hear it from someone else, that's enough to make us pretty nervous. And we just need everything to line up and be positive to do this because you're really tripling, quadrupling down on a specific company. And as you said, that that's not our basic skill set. We're more of fund managers. We're hiring people not specific companies. So we need to get a really high level of conviction from all the key players, industry experts, to know that this is something that matters. We've done some uh, mezzanine financing as well in some of these deals where 
people were investing in a particular product, the the banks, because of Dodd-Frank. A lot of the smaller regional banks were not providing lending to small companies. And we are senior in a capital structure. We know the company. We know the equity that the general partner has behind it. We know that we're going to get taken out in 90 or 180 days, and we can do some fairly attractive financing in a short period of time, high in the capital structure with a very good risk profile credit analysis. How do you size these individual positions relative to, say, either the size of investment you already have through the GP or the size of your commitment to that GP's fund? That's a really tough one that's quite judgmental. You, The old line, you get it right, then get it big. But at the same time, how far out do you want to climb on a skinny branch? So there are a lot of different metaphors here that can pull you in both directions. The sizing decision is one of the toughest ones we have. So that's where we'll really internally have the, the bear bull discussion. Well, why if we do this, why shouldn't we just really go big on this if you really believe it? Well, why should we be putting more than X? We already have this much money in this space. And we will really push each other quite aggressively on the sizing decision. And we want people to have different opinions and intentionally push us hard on it and justify why you are uh, feeling the, the size of that position is right. And on average, where do they where do they come out, like an individual one of these? It's going to run a pretty broad range from uh, just a few million dollars to north of 20. So for our size, our, our normal bite size, it, it can be really quite sizable. Yeah. And again, it's the level of conviction drives it all. So if we take a step back to that portfolio level, it, you do all this work. How, about how many manager relationships do you end up with across the portfolio? Oh, Wow. We have way too many because <laughs> I, I think this is a common thread. The people you may have hired 12 or 14 years ago who you no longer consider a core manager, but you still got a fund that's there, and it just has got one or two assets still in it, and it's a 10-year-old fund, and they keep extending it. So what if we just talk about kind of what you consider core ongoing relationships, either in the public markets or managers you're expecting to continue to fund in the private market? It is still a pretty good-sized number, more in the 150 to 200 size. And a lot of that, though, is still that you have small managers coming in and you have some older ones that are that are towards the tail end or they're, they just don't have that big of a relationship yet. Yeah. So the sizable ones, I mean, we in the public markets, you can do a bigger size. So our largest public equity in domestic equity is a 5% position. And in international equity, we have a 5% position. That's the a, total at the fund. manager level. A manager for the total fund, not in the asset class. So it's a very sizable 30% piece of an asset class. So we try to take those very sizable positions. And then around that, we might have a a next tier that is a couple of percentage points. But then you have some people who maybe are on their way in or on their way out that are smaller positions. And uh, you're not going to put a big allocation to somebody you're, you haven't really proven out yet. So there, there are always some people in that transition phase. How do you think about the level of diversification 
that that creates. You say, okay, we've got our largest positions, 5%, and that manager, if they're concentrated, might have 20 names. And so the very largest position is, I don't know, 1% or less. Do you, do you worry about being over-diversified? I absolutely worry about that. And if any of my trustees end up listening to this call, we had a discussion on manager concentration two investment committee meetings ago and very strong pushback that we have way too many managers. And we all we fully acknowledged it. We went in telling them that we knew this and that we've been trying for some time to get bigger and bigger allocations to our higher conviction people. But anytime you look at the secondary markets to do a sale, what you're offered for these old stubs is such a large discount that it's not worth doing that. So we'll let this pretty meaningfully big number of small stubs stay in the portfolio and let it let it run off. But I do think we're we're over diversified. One of the hard areas, I'm going to direct this into the venture capital conversation, just because this was a big recent discussion at our investment committee meeting. The early practitioners of the endowment model, and we all know who they are, I won't name them out, but have had tremendous success in venture capital. And venture capital was a big, big driver, particularly those that were in back in the 90s and had big allocations to a space that did exceptionally well. And that continues to this day. The old line about venture is an access class, not an asset class. And the ability to get into those top-tier funds is is a challenge. So we, we finally managed to get an allocation at one of those uh, funds. We have now 30 investments in this manager, but most of it has been in the last five years, and none of it is mature. So even though money is in there, it just takes so long for venture to build up with many, many funds and a number of managers for that asset class to have mature investments that are going to move the needle for your portfolio. It's a tough place. And to find the next generation of venture funds that are, you hope, going to be the leaders in the next decade, that's a tough one, too. Finding those people who really are going to be the, the great leaders in, in these spaces, generally healthcare and, and tech. So you end up making a number of smaller bets, and it's kind of a weed and feed process where you're growing your winners and you kind of let the ones that you have less conviction just run off. So you end up with a lot of names in the portfolio that you don't want, but you're still trying to use a farm club and find those new people and then develop them and grow them. And it's a, it's a tough process trying to sell off or weed out those that you really aren't going to be funding down the road. And how much does that aggregate to just the venture piece and all of those, the ones you're seeding, the ones you're weeding, all of it? It's probably just a few percentage points, but it's time consuming. There's a lot there for something that doesn't really move the needle that much in the short term. But we absolutely know from looking at our peers who've been doing this a long time that that is a key driver of their long-term return. So we're making decisions today that will 
make our successors look like heroes, we hope. Yeah. <laughs> we think it's the right thing to do for the fund, even though we know it's a really long-term investment. We all talk about being long-term and doing what we think is right in the long-term for the institution. Yeah. So let's turn a little bit to the public side. What's your take on long-only public equities and hedge funds? It's probably not that different from the conventional views out there. U.S. markets are pretty richly valued, so we are underweight our targets, but not by huge amounts, but you you try to maintain some discipline in your targets, but we are underweight. In international, we are overweight. We think they're earlier in their cycle, so we're overweight particularly in emerging, and within emerging, particularly in China. So there are various tailwind stories on demographics and growth and why you are willing to do that. But that is a long-term conviction that we're going to try to maintain that overweight position in emerging broadly in China in particular, particularly because of the conviction we have in several managers. And is it all active management? All active management, yeah. How do you incorporate hedge funds? Hedge funds are the point guards. I know you like sports, Ted, so I'll throw that, <laughs> I'll throw that one in. They're the point guards out there. They see the whole action in front of them. They're looking over all the asset classes. They're looking over all the opportunities. And sometimes the, the point guards out there hitting three-pointers, right? They're putting up big returns, dropping in some three-pointers. And other times, they're, they're just setting up their teammates. They're, they're passing the ball off. So there's a lot of information that you get from the hedge funds. You know, we've all seen the studies where, from a risk-return perspective, hedge funds always come out looking good. The lower volatility, the decent returns, there's some liquidity, They've got some good attributes in all of these areas, but they're rarely going to be your top performer. They're not going to be the most liquid, but they do bring these other attributes. And they're smart people that you can use for asset allocation guidance as well. But we tend to be more in relative value and arbitrage type strategies. The beta is down around a 03 so it's not a big, heavy equity presence there. We don't do much in macro. Uh, the binary bets of up or down are, are less appealing to us. So it's really trying to find those arbitrage relative value opportunities. Let's turn a little bit to decision-making and decision-making processes. So you, you started by saying you've been delegated a lot of authority from the board, which isn't always the case. How do you work with your board and your trustees? We have got an incredible group of trustees who are very experienced investors all across the board. We have people with backgrounds in private equity and public equity and distressed and venture capital. And these are very smart investors. And they bring their background and knowledge and they show up to meetings. They will want to be there in person, which just makes the group dynamic so rich when people take time out of a busy schedule to come and be there in person and be, they want to be part of the conversation and share the debate and understand what 
they think we should be doing, and we will make presentations to them. But they are uh, they will always weigh in with uh, the direction they want us to take. They really set the the tone, the philosophy, the risk profile, the overall big picture strategy that they want. And our job is to work with that and make proposals on asset allocation and particular implementation ideas. And then they give us the authority to go and and implement it. Uh, So the governance structure, I think what really helps the endowment and foundation world so much. And I think the statistics show the endowment and foundation world is the really the top performing group among institutional investors. I think it can be really attributed to the governance structure. And a lot of that credit goes to the trustees who work in this space and then the staff that they have attracted and brought to it who all work quite cooperatively in this space and driving the decisions. And what works for that group of trustees that's more challenged for others? I think they hang their personal opinions, political beliefs, all of that is outside of the room. They don't bring it into the room with them. They are there. And and what we love about it, whether you're at a university or a foundation, they are all there because they love the institution. They love the institution, and that's why they're there. That's why they're giving up their free time to provide the service. And that level of conviction matters, and it's, it's meaningful. So I think it's a unique space that they have this love and passion as opposed to a job. And that's a real difference. difference. People who come to a meeting because they're passionate about it, not because they're punching a clock. And and wow, that's a a great benefit to all of us in this space. So now that you have the decision-making authority, how do you make decisions with your team in, in actually implementing those final investment decisions? Well, at the end of the day, I probably have the majority of the vote on asset allocation, but I've really tried to push the majority of the vote on the managers down to the people in the different asset class. They're the specialists. I will never know as much as they do. I'm going to challenge them, push them, attend the meetings, do due diligence calls, sit in on it, but I want them to own it. In fact, I will occasionally intentionally not attend a meeting because if I'm there, I kind of suck the oxygen out of the room, and I want them to run the meeting. And it's important for them to own their space, own the decision, believe in the managers, and feel that this is their contribution and what they're doing. I have a veto, but I never want to use it. And I think you try to get that message across. And I'll I'll give an opinion, and sometimes it's more strongly impressed than others, (laughs) but they will listen to my opinion, and and not often that they will will challenge it strongly. But I I really trust and believe in them. And they're a a terrific group who put a lot of effort into what they're doing. They uh, make a big commitment to this. They work very long, willing hours. They are all loving what they do. Uh, They travel around the world looking for the best people in their space. So um, you want them to to feel that ownership. So without naming names, take an example in your head of when you really pushed back on 
one of the senior members of your team about an idea and flesh out for me what was the crux of the difference of opinion? The crux of the difference of opinion, I will confess, are my personal biases. Which are what? Uh, in certain cases, well, I'm hesitating a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll say this out loud and see how far down the rabbit hole I get. I had a bias against Latin American securities, feeling that that has just been an area that's way too volatile, very hard to time. Long term, it's a tough place to be. It's more of getting in and getting out. And they came back to me with some analysis and data showing that it was not as volatile as I thought, that the long-term performance across different spaces was more positive than in a lot of developed markets, and that if one behaves opportunistically and buys well, that this is a place to be opportunistic and take advantage of those plays when they come along. I had dug in my heels for some time, but when a, an opportunity did come along, and then a specific manager came along who played that opportunity in an opportunistic way, not a lifetime commitment way, I was talked into something that I felt was a, a good, positive thing that I went into thinking, no way am I going to do this. And, it, and so in an example like that, it doesn't have to be that one, but what then happens when two, three years later, oh, maybe you were right? <laughs> you have to separate good decisions and good outcomes and bad decisions and bad outcomes. You can have good decision and have a bad outcome, and you're just unlucky. You can have a bad decision and a good outcome, and you really were lucky. But you want to make good decisions. So you need to go back and say, was the decision right? Given the information that we looked at, did we ask all the right questions? Did we do the right work? Did we just get hit by something that was unlucky? Or was this something we should have caught? Right. But that's a, so that's a good process. Yeah. So that's all I'm, that's all I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to go back and say, was that decision? Did I miss something? I have a so I to push you a little bit more. So okay, keep pushing. You get to this point in time yeah. where part of that decision process in this Latin American example was, hey, you can be opportunistic. And we've got someone who we think is skilled at being opportunistic. Then... You go, you're, inevitably, you're going to go through a period of time where they get it wrong. It was still a good process. Now you're not sure if it was a good decision. Mm -hmm. What's the process at that point in time to re-underwrite that decision? It's basically that. It's re-underwriting it, and what I have to constrain myself, I realize I'm, I do have biases, and both sides, myself and somebody who may have an opposite bias, we have to bring our decision-making process back into the room, underwrite it, underwrite it with data, and minimize biases. And that's easier to say than do. We all have inherent biases, and you, you try not to 
overreact to those. And there are lots of little examples that that we all have that we could give. I, I picked one, but there are a number of others. And I try to be mindful of my biases, but I'm sure there are times that my staff would tell you I I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I have more biases than I'm willing to acknowledge. But we all we all have to do that, and we have to push each other, and that's part of the the bull bear, part of the uh, all of the discussions you have is to to challenge one another and decisions only get better when we push each other. I'm curious how you build a team here. I mean, you mentioned at the top that, yes, the weather's beautiful. Yes, <laughs> the office space is beautiful. But as opposed to, say, a lot of endowments who have embedded graduating seniors and, and some of the universities have chosen to use that as a funnel for their staff and their future staff, there's no embedded potential investment employee base here. So how have you found the people that are on your team and how have you kept them here? It it is pretty amazing, and part of it is it we're not keeping them, so we don't have a jump. We had one person move from being an analyst to being a managing director, but that's not a normal process, and that may never happen again. So the analysts will eventually have to leave. There's not a step for them, and I try to tell them that really early on. This is not a lifetime job. We will promise you that the experience you get here is going to be quite exceptional. You will become a deep expert in a asset class. You will meet some of the leading managers around the world in that space. You will go to meetings in other asset classes and meet some of those leading managers. And you will travel around the world pursuing your asset class. You will learn about asset allocation. You will have a deep knowledge in one space and a broad knowledge about how a place like this runs. That's my commitment to you. And we ideally want an analyst for their second job after undergrad. We'd like them to have one other job for three or four years, similar to what they're doing, take them for a second job. And then after their second job, they go off to business school and we are committed with the quality of people we have. They will get into any one of the top business schools they want. We're sure they will. And after that, their opportunity should be a very rich one. The last couple of people we hired, we had over 500 people apply for the opening. And the quality of candidates we saw was quite remarkable. So I think we don't have any difficulty in finding or attracting really good talent to the place. We think we give them an opportunity. And as this goes on, the best recruitment tool I think we have is to tell a potential new candidate, call some of the people who had this job before. Here's their name. Here's their number. Give them a call. Ask them what they think. And I think that'll be the best recruitment we can we can use. You mentioned earlier when we were having lunch that most of your trustees investment committee members are local. And it's helpful for geography. They can be here. Do you take other... So you mentioned trying to be Switzerland relative to endowments. That's a great network. Are there other kind of competitive advantages that you try to bring to the table in this process where there are lots of smart, large pools of capital looking for what you are looking for in the top kind of best of breed managers around the world? 
Well, the Getty named helps in the oil industry. So when we're looking, <laughs> we're looking at energy companies and we show up with J. Paul Getty written on our business card, I think that, that moves the needle. We don't have the opportunity that our colleagues in New York would have just by the sheer number of managers that are located there. We don't have that kind of easy relationship. But I think we're not that different from others. So it, it, we're just trying to find the best people who are out there and show them that the fact that we are final decision makers, the fact that we can make decisions quickly, and I'm going back to what I was saying in our competitive advantage, that we don't need our handheld. It's long-term capital. It's a very smart group of folks in the managing director level. We are on, across our department, we're on many, many LP advisory boards. We get invited to be on those boards across all the different asset classes. And I think that says a lot. And when you have the respect of both general partners and the other LPs to participate in that way. And it's reaching out and being helpful to people. It's that small town stuff I was talking yeah. about at the start. Just be nice. Just be nice. So what are you most excited about and what are you most worried about in the markets or, or maybe more specifically even within your portfolio? I want to first take you back to your college days, Ted. So do you remember the days when you got up and you're getting ready for class and you go to your closet and you have no clean shirts, and you start sniffing through the laundry, <laughs> trying to find the least dirty shirt to wear to class. Maybe. This is kind. Of, <laughs> this is kind of a least dirty shirt market. So portfolios are made up of a collection of least dirty shirts. There aren't a lot of great opportunities today. And it, it's a least dirty shirt portfolio. That said, there, you're, I'm, I'm being a little glib here, but we're still trying to find where are the best opportunities in this space. Our, our overweights, we still have some overweights in credit. We have virtually no core fixed income. It's all, we'd rather take credit risk than any kind of duration And what risk. type of, is it structured credit? Or? No, it, it would be more of those small mid-market uh, credit opportunities that we were talking yeah. about before, more direct lending. We have the overweights that I mentioned in China, and the other big overweight is in energy. And what we like about energy and still do is the fundamentals are really, really good. But the attitudes, the news reports, the emotions are not good. And that's really kind of okay, because in the long term, fundamentals win. And if the atmospherics are just not that good for a space, that short-term volatility is fine. You can make money with that kind of volatility if the fundamentals are solid. And we think this is a space with some really solid, good fundamentals for some time. And so we have a pretty big overweight on in the energy space. And have you approached that in the same way? You're looking for a select number? Yes. Is it public and private markets? Almost all private. Almost all private. Yeah. yeah. So it is the private markets where the big opportunities are. And again, as in all of the asset classes, we have a pretty big bias toward small to mid-market. 
the smaller managers in virtually every asset class is the the space where we're more focused. We think there's more inefficiencies and greater opportunities in that small mid-market space. And how do you manage around the potential that dirty shirts only get clean <laughs> through a really, really detailed scrubbing. <laughs> oh, God. That, how far can we pull that metaphor, huh? <laughs> if mom's going to come and do your laundry, huh? The big scary parts that we try to always avoid, but particularly in times like that, are the, the two L's, leverage and liquidity. And so as we started out on this conversation, it is liquidity matters. And for us, it matters a lot. It's the key driver of our asset allocation. So we're going to be very cognizant of our liquidity, maybe have a little excess liquidity so that you can take advantage of opportunities if there is a a meaningful correction. And leverage is just the, the one that's going to kill you in the downturn and just avoid anything that has any leverage risk associated with it. So watch those two L's, and that's across all the the various asset classes as as best you can. Great. Well, I want to leave a little time to turn to some closing questions. (laughs) Jim, you know what's coming. What was your favorite sports moment? Favorite sports moment? Well, I'd mentioned the small town I was from. So in my small town high school, I was the – captain of the football team and all conference and all of this. And I thought I was uh, better than I was. Uh, I went off to Michigan. I was a walk-on there. That was not a great sport moment, my walk-on at Michigan. I suffered from an incurable disease known as lack of breakaway speed. (laughs) And so even though I I wasn't good with breakaway speed, I turned later to long distance running. And I think you've done some marathons. I've done 10 marathons. And probably my favorite moment would be the 1986 New York City Marathon I did in just over three hours. So clicked off seven minute miles for for the whole marathon. And I feel pretty good about that. Well, you should just like it was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah that uh, that had a 30 year anniversary a short while yeah. ago that made me feel old what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you my dad's number one comment was turn off the lights and i find myself now telling the kids turn off the lights the serious part of that is what i really did learn from my parents was to be nice and it's going to pay you back, but it's, that's not the reason you do it. You feel good about being nice. So being respectful, that small town atmosphere of helping your neighbors, and you just do it. You don't, you don't think about it. You don't do it for heroic reasons. You just be nice and you help. Do you find it hard in the seat you're in with that lens of being in a business where you repeatedly have to turn people down? Yeah, it's hard. Oh my goodness, it's hard. It is hard to say no, and I I try to use the gentle phrase of it's not a good fit. And it's an honest answer that we do very specific things, and there aren't that many managers that line up with exactly what we're trying to do, even though they're good. They can be very good at what they do, but it just doesn't fit what we do. So it is hard inside to tell people that you personally like and respect, it's not a good fit. Yeah, yeah. 
What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about? Well, I think everybody knows about the ones. I don't think I do anything that's that unusual, but just to tick off a, a couple, I really like Cambridge's monthly market outlook. And the big attribute of that is that it cuts across every single asset class. And it is really hard, and there are very few publications that cut across everything. And they're looking through one institution's lens across everything and giving their view. So tracking that, and what might be more valuable is their cover page that just shows the trends and changes over time. So you can see relative as well as absolute positions. And I find that really helpful. I also always stop and read whenever Byron Wien publishes just because he's been around for so long. He's got such insight, such experience, such wit. Whatever he has to say, it's worth stopping what you're doing and reading it. The last one is Howard Marks, although I love teasing Howard that he's gotten to the stage in life where he quotes himself. (laughs) <laughs> he, he said his wife Nancy tells him the same thing and I said well you need to listen to your wife Howard <laughs> what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life my small town background and first member of my family to go to college I never really had a mentor and I really never had a mentor until the time when I came to the Getty And I told the story about the gentleman who introduced me here, and he became a mentor. And we had a terrific relationship until he passed away a few years ago. And from him, I learned how powerful and helpful that is. So I've tried to go out of my way and reach out to people. And in particular, I I try to ask people to become mentors themselves particularly young folks who think, well, I'm young. I'm looking for a mentor myself, not to mentor someone else, but to encourage everyone to do some mentoring. And my personal part of this is to not just for the person who approaches you, because that person kind of already knows what's going on, but to reach out to that shy kid in the corner who doesn't know enough to ask for a mentor, because that was me. So that's one that really matters to me. All right, last one. Sadly, leave this sunshine. (laughs) Uh, It's your waning days. You are sitting in your office chair, still here. Still here. (laughs) Overlooking the veranda, (laughs) overlooking this incredible art around you. What advice would you give yourself today? Well, first, I'm really grateful that the trustees didn't throw me out before then. But the, the <laughs> thing that I'm still here in my rocking chair out on the balcony, I think what I've, I've heard this before, but I think it is, it is just great. The biggest regrets that you have when you get older are not the things that you did that didn't go well, that were some kind of a mistake. It's the things you never tried. And I've tried to do new things like doing a podcast. I, this would never have crossed my mind 15 years ago, doing a podcast or public speaking or any number of things that you've just got to try for 
all the rich opportunities in life and reach out and do more. And that that's just so important for everyone to reach for it. Go for it. Well, Jim, I, I am very grateful, and I'm sure everyone who's listened to this uh, will be grateful that you took this as one of those opportunities. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for coming, Ted. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.